There was a pastor in the 20th century. His name was A.W. Tozer. And he wrote a famous book called The Knowledge of the Holy. And if you've read it, you're a good friend of mine. If you haven't, get it on your book list. Beautiful book. Kath and I read through it last year uh, just as a couple, and we meditated on the passages just as we went through. But The Knowledge of the Holy. And in that book, he has this wonderful statement. He says, What comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes to your mind when you hear the word God? Because that's contested real estate, you know, vocabulary real estate in our culture. There's a whole host of images that we conjure to our minds depending on the background, the tradition, the religion, the philosophy that you subscribe to in our modern, western, pluralistic, democratic society. What comes to your mind when you think about God? Does what come to your mind, is it, is it nothing? Is it, is it nothing? Is it something? Is that which comes to your mind exciting to you? Or is it boring? Does that which comes to your mind scare you? Or does it fuel you? What comes to your mind when you think about God? And Tozer would say it's the most important thing about you. I heard a preacher say, you know, a number of years ago that the task of teaching the Bible and, and preaching in the church is to sort of make the strange familiar to Christians and make the familiar strange. And as a church, we're going through, you know, the story of Jesus this Advent, which formally starts next week, I, I will admit, but we're getting a kickstart. And my, my task, actually, as I unpack the scriptures, and, and those that will come after me next week and the week after, standing here in the pulpit with the scriptures open, their, their task is to take this story that we're so used to, that becomes so mundane and so rhythmic and so without notice every year, and make it strange to us again. And then at the same time, for those who don't know the story of Jesus, that might feel estranged from the story of Jesus, to make it familiar. Again, so we're going through this, this series um, in Advent, and last week I unpacked the idea that um, Jesus is the king we always hoped for, but he's the king we never expected. He's the king we always hoped for because we long for someone who's good and righteous and just to come and do away with all the evil in the world. And every human, regardless of religious background or not, longs for that. It's what fuels the drive of justice in our world. It's what sits behind the desire to have decent legislative policies which actually affect change in the world. We all want someone to come and do away with evil in the world. It's a great comfort because he's the king we always expected. But at the same time, he's the king, sorry, that we never expected. He's the king that we never expected. And he is this because Jesus comes to confront not just the evil out there in the world, but the evil in each of our own hearts which makes the Christmas story not just comforting for the future hope that we've got, but confronting for the present reality we sit in. And what's that? It's to acknowledge that if you're a Christian, you've just got, you don't have it all together. We don't point to the evil out there and say, well, they're the bad ones, let's get rid of them. We just say the line between good and evil runs right down the heart of every single human, that we ourselves are complicit in the problem of, well, that was last week. And this week, I want to unpack the idea that Jesus is the king in the flesh. He's the king in the flesh. Um, in this passage, John, just as a little side note before I give you where I'm going, he, he gives one of the most profound, concentrated statements of what theologians call the incarnation in the scriptures. And the side note is this, it's just a fun fact. 
Incarnation is just like a, it comes from Latin root words. Um, but incarnation is, uh, it's just God in flesh. And to help you sort of think through how a fancy word can be made familiar, um, one of the meals I really enjoy eating is chili con carne. And uh, to translate chili con carne with the Latin roots that sort of bubble away in the surface of that word, it's chili in meat, chili with meat, sorry. Con means with, chili with meat. And so when you read the word incarnation, it just means God in meat. That's, that's what that word means. And the theologians in the room, Dylan's on it, but the theologians in the room are just like, surely there's more nuance. And it's like, there probably is, but there's, that's the bottom line fact. It's God in meat. But John, he gives us a pretty profound, concentrated look at the incarnation today. And I want to look at it and think through three things with us, because I think it shows us three things. Um, again, if you love John 1, which I've spoken with multiple people here this afternoon, and they will say, I love John 1. I was actually at dinner with Paul and Liz uh, a few weeks ago, and we sat there looking at John 1 together, and um, it was wonderful. But Paul just like lit up uh, in front of the text of John 1, and it was just a delight um, to see that. So John 1, I think we can learn three things, plus a few more, but I've got a time limit this afternoon. Three things. One, um, it shows us a clear picture of God. Two, a different greatness to aim for. And three, a beautiful model for outreach. One, a clear picture of God. Two, a different greatness to aim for. And three, a beautiful model for outreach. So one, a clear picture of God. Around, I think it was 500 BC, I don't know the exact date, but Gautama Buddha, um, he told a story about some blind men and an elephant. You might have heard this story before. The premise is that uh, there's, there's a story of a king, and he has some men who are born blind from birth, and they're brought into the kingdom uh, to try and uh, talk about an elephant. He brings them before the elephant and asks them, though they're blind, to, start, to start describing the elephant by touching it. And so the first one, blind as he is, walks up to the elephant, and he grabs the elephant's trunk and says, oh, an elephant, as he's trying to describe what an elephant is, he says, an elephant is like a big, thick snake. Now, the story breaks down. If you're trying to ask how do they know what a snake's like, just don't ask that question. <laughs> but second one, blind man walks in, places his hand on the elephant's ear, and he starts to say, oh, an, ele an elephant is like a big palm leaf. A big palm leaf. The third guy walks in, places his hand on the leg and says, the el an elephant is like a big, big tree trunk. And the moral of the story is Buddha told it um, back when there was divisions between Hinduism and Buddhism and sort of Eastern pantheistic faiths. The moral of the story was because humanity sees partially, they don't realize that what they see is all the same thing. And that's how he deployed that story. Um, but we deploy this story in the West, as moderns, as an argument for relativism, the idea that all roads lead to the same God. Philosophical relativism, it says that all worldviews, all religions, are fundamentally the same and only superficially different. So the Christian, they says, like, God is, you know, God is like Jesus Christ. That's what the Christian says. But, but the, the Muslim, they would say God is like Allah. And the Hindu would say, actually, we've got a pantheon of gods. And the Buddhists would say, actually, I don't think God exists because I did a bit of research into Buddhism, and that's what I found out. And, and they would say, but all of them are sort of, you know, partial expressions of the same ultimate thing. And this is how we deploy that story. It's just that none of us can fully see the truth that we're talking about. Now, this sounds really nice, and it sounds really inclusive, and it sounds really humble and gentle. But there's three little problems with this kind of thinking. 
in the modern West. The first one is that it's not inclusive, it's actually exclusive, at least if we're talking about what it really means to be inclusive. See, truth, by definition, is exclusive. When you make a truth claim, you're saying what you think reality is, and therefore you're saying what you think reality is not. And so all truth claims are themselves exclusive. So if you say that all religions are fundamentally the same, you're saying that those who disagree with you are themselves wrong, which means for, in order for you to hold your position, you need to exclude those who are exclusivists. So not everyone who thinks they're being inclusive actually includes everybody. Because all truth claims are exclusive, you need to exclude some things. Most dense point, a promise. Second point, it's not as humble as it sounds. It's a little bit presumptuous and a little bit arrogant. Think about it. The story of the blind men and the elephant, it's got a narrator. And who's the narrator in the story? And the narrator in this story is the modern person, the enlightened person, the person who presumes that they've got 20-20 vision of what all religions say. And here's what's happening when modern people tell this story. They're actually saying that everybody else is blind and I, as the enlightened 21st century person, I see reality as it is. I've got the right glasses for this thing we call life. And it's, it's just presumptuous. Um, it can be a bit arrogant. It's not to say that they can't make an argument for that, but if that's all that they said, it's not an argument, it's an assertion. It's just a bit presumptuous. And the third thing is, uh, it's, it's actually not helpful, it's more of a hindrance to sort of worthwhile investigation as to what God could be like and what life is for. What do I mean? Well, relativism, it's a narrative which exists uh, to sort of stop you from investigating what different religions say about the world, what different philosophies would invite you to consider. And so if you throw it out as a smokescreen, saying, oh, all religions are fundamentally the same, and therefore, I don't really need to examine the claims of Jesus. I don't really need to go into the scriptures and understand what Jesus came for and what he claimed to be doing. It's just, it actually stops you investigating that. And so it's not a worthwhile narrative to throw up there as a smokescreen. And if you find yourself doing that, my challenge would be, actually, you're excluding some people here. You, you might not be as humble as you think. And there's an invitation to investigate still on the table. Because the question always remains, what evidence do you have for the claims you make about reality and what's ultimately leading to life and good life? So that stuff done. This story assumes, right? It assumes that every world religion is the result of blind humans fumbling around in the dark, trying to think about what God is like and what God, uh, whether he's real. But here's the question that today's passage raises. Here it is. What if the elephant spoke? What if God's not this distant entity that we're fumbling around in the dark looking for? What if he spoke? What if he revealed something? What if he made it such that darkness didn't exist anymore? John 1, verse 1, 4 and 5 and 14 says this. That was more of a mouthful than I thought, but here we are. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. What's he saying? He's saying that humanity, we're in the dark. That's our base state. We are in the dark. We're in the dark about ourselves, 
We're in the dark about one another. We're in the dark about the world. And we're in dark, especially about God. We are in the dark. And to, to say that we're like blind men trying to touch the divine, speculate our way up to God, that's actually too generous, the scriptures would say. It's too generous. The, the state that we find ourselves in, it's a bit more bleak than that. We're in the dark. We don't know God. We, didn't bo- we weren't born with this natural picture of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, crucified. We didn't come up with that. We're in the dark about God. And so Christianity says that truth about God is not something that humans can speculate. It's something that God has to reveal. It's something that, it's not bottom-up speculation, it's, it's top-down revelation. And just think about it, and this point will be over in a moment, just think about it for a moment. If the being that we're dealing with when we come to make claims about God is God, creator of the universe, redeemer of humanity, the one who spoke stars into motion and then put himself in our story. If the being we're talking about is God, it makes no sense for us to think that we can imagine him up. It makes no sense for us to think that we can capture him with our thoughts unless he reveals himself. There's a theologian who put it like this, Hugh Ross McIntosh. He said, um, a religious knowledge of God, wherever existing, it comes by revelation. Otherwise, we should be committed to the incredible position that a man can know God without God's willing of himself to be known. What a strange thought. It's that we know about God because God was gracious enough to show show us himself. That's what that's saying. We'd be in the dark otherwise. And here's the cool thing about God. Rather than leaving us to half-truths, he put on flesh. He wrote himself into history in the person of Jesus. He made himself known. He revealed himself. In other words, God gave us a clear picture of who he is in Jesus. When I was living in the UK, one of my housemates, Alonzo, Canadian guy, he would say, God took a selfie in the face of Jesus Christ. You want to know what God's like? Look at Jesus. You want to know what we're here for? Look at Jesus. Do you want to know what life's about? Look at Jesus. Do you want to know what ultimate reality points towards? Look at Jesus. He revealed himself. We're not in the dark anymore. We're not fumbling around looking for answers to the divine and real questions and meaningful questions of life. He's shown up. All religions make exclusive claims about reality, and all of them make different claims about reality. And you won't won't talk to any faithful Christian, any faithful Buddhist, any faithful Hindu, any faithful atheist, and say, they won't say, oh, I, I think that my worldview is sort of, it works with you holding your worldview as true as well. It, it doesn't work that way. Not when the claims are exclusive. That's a hard word to digest, but if you don't hear it, what are you doing? You might be stumbling around in the dark. And when John says that Jesus came as the light, turned on the switch. I grew up and I was scared of the dark, and nightlights were really helpful, but you know what was better? The morning. (laughs) And this is the claim of John. The mornings come in Jesus Christ. We see rightly. We view God rightly in Jesus. And so here's the question for each of you this afternoon for point one. What do you make of Jesus? Just take 10 seconds. Maybe you want to close your eyes. Who do you say he is? I started following Jesus 10 years ago. 
my life completely backflipped. Jesus explained the life that I'd lived and he convicted me of the life that I'd experienced. And he invited me to the life that he had for me. Who do you say that Jesus is? So first, a clear picture of God. Second, a different greatness to aim for. Most people think that John, the writer of this gospel, he's writing towards the end of the first century. And there's a bit of debate about that, but end of the first century. And throughout this passage, John keeps mentioning what he calls the word. The word, John says. The Greek term for this is the word logos. And this word had a bunch of philosophical baggage in the first century, which actually now I feel like all of us will after that first point, but that's neither here nor there. Bunch of philosophical baggage from the the Jews and the Greeks. The Greeks thought that the logos was another name for ultimate reality, sort of like the blueprint of creation, the the source of all meaning in life. It's distant, it's transcendent, but that was what the logos was in the Greek uh, imagination. In the Jewish imagination, Jews thought of the Logos as sort of God's speech in the Old Testament. If you want to know what I mean, go to Genesis 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning was God, and God spoke. They think of it as God's speech, or personified in the Proverbs as like the Old Testament lady of wisdom. It's this idea that behind this world sits this meaningful source, this blueprint for reality, this way that we're meant to live our lives. And the Logos sort of captured this idea, both for the Greeks and the Jews. And so when they read along, they're expecting, they they think, logos, transcendent, distant, meaningful source of life. That's what they're thinking when they read this. And so they hear John's first words, and it says this, in the beginning was the logos, and the logos was with God, and the logos was God. And they're thinking, well, heck yeah, that's exactly right, John. you've, You've absolutely nailed it. He was with God, and he was God. God is transcendent. God is creator. God is eternal. God is infinite. God is powerful. But then, then John says, verse 14, and let me read it for you, just with that mindset there in the front of your brain. He says, the word, the logos, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Pin drop silence for the original readers of this text. Pin drop. Why? Because they've got this question. They say, hold on, is God transcendent or is he imminent? And John's like, yep. (laughs) They ask questions like, is God human or is God God? And John's like, yep. Is God, is he creator or is he close to creation? Yep. Is God eternal or is he the one who stepped into time? Yep. And is God powerful or the one who scandalously made himself subject to power? Yep. That's the king in the flesh. It's a scandal. It's a mystery. It's a paradox. Here's the thing. It's the, it's the incarnation. And it's the very center around which the Christian faith orbits. The king in the flesh, here as one of us, for us. The transcendent and the imminent, the fully God and fully human, the creator but one who came into creation, the eternal one who stepped into time, the powerful and the one who made himself subject to power and ultimately he's the greatest being in heaven and earth and he showed it not by staying distant and unaffected by the world that we find ourselves in but by coming close 
by feeling the burden of this world. In other words, he put on flesh. And Charles Wesley, in a hymn that we're probably going to sing in a few weeks' time, he put it like this, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Now earlier I said, what comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Why? Because what we think about God shapes who we're becoming. It tilts our life in a certain direction. If God is Jesus in flesh, if Jesus is God in flesh, my apologies, he's our true north for life. He's the one we're oriented to become. So think about human greatness just as a topic because we're talking about a king here. Think about human greatness. To be great in the economy of the world is it's to assert yourself over people. It's, it's to serve yourself at the expense of others. It's to seek control. It's to seek status and executive authority and recognition and wealth. And it's to seek, ultimately, the spotlight. But what if you think the greatest being in the universe, he came, not to seize power, but to give it up. Not to be served, but to serve. Not to make himself great, but to make himself less. What if he came not to demand loyalty, but to offer love? If the greatest being in the universe came to earth, put on flesh, dwelt among us, suffered with us, lived for us, loved on us, and died for us, if that's him, what does that mean? Well, it gives us a different greatness to aim for, right? As Christians, as followers of this king, it gives us a different greatness to aim for. See, the incarnation, it tells us that greatness isn't something to hold on to. It's something to give up for the sake of other people. Power isn't something to subject people with, but something to serve people from. Authority is not something to assert, but something to use for the sake of people. And love, it's not something to be demanded, but something to offer. Let me put it this way. In John's mind, in the minds of the early Christians, and in the argument of the New Testament, here's what's going on. In the same way that the incarnation completely inverted the ancient expectations for God, so too should the lives of Christians completely invert the expectations of culture. So who are you this afternoon? How are you living this afternoon? In the same way, the incarnation completely inverted the expectations of the ancients. So too should the life of a Christian completely invert your family and what they think your greatness would be, your colleagues and what they think your greatness would be, your boss, your children, anyone in your sphere of influence, anyone in your world. So who are you this afternoon? And is this a greatness that you're aiming for? And if you're a Christian, here's my encouragement, here's my exhortation, here's my plea. Let's let this be our greatness. Love, service, humility, using the stations we find ourselves in in life to bless those that surround us. How can you be great like King Jesus? So one, a clear picture. Two, a different greatness. And finally, a model for outreach. Um, a few years ago, I um, watched a TV series on Netflix uh, called Designated Survivor. And if you'd ask my wife, she'd say, he's, he's watching it again at the moment, but we don't go there. 
And it follows the presidency of a man named Tom Kirkman, who was sworn in as president one night as Capitol Hill was bombed. Big scenario. And as president, he goes to visit the government workers who are cleaning up the bomb debris at the Capitol site. And uh, he rocks up, multiple car motorcade. He's got a full suit, big entourage, media paparazzi, and a full security detail. All things like that. People gather around him, but here's the thing. When he rocks up that way, no one really interacts with him. No one really appreciates him. They see him as aloof, distant, unempathetic, and unrelatable. And so he leaves, he's a bit dis disappointed, and they go back to the White House. And later in that episode, uh, he convinces this security detail to take him back, but with much smaller security detail, just his friend Mike. Uh, and this time, there'll be no motorcade, no suit, no paparazzi, no media, no entourage, no security detail. He just rocks up with a baseball cap on and a hand outstretched to shake hands. And he interacted. And people warmed to him. People felt relatable to him. He made an impact because of the way he rocked up. He came as one of them. And the major point, this is literally the illustration of what John's saying in this opening chapter. The major point of John's gospel is that God is reaching out to redeem the world. John 3.16, we know it off by heart. If you're not even a Christian, you'll know the passage. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever should believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. This is the major argument of John's gospel. God is reaching out to redeem the world. And the broad argument of this text is that humanity is in darkness, that we need redemption. And so this big mission, this big vision, this big sort of understanding of what it might mean for God to outreach to humanity. And what's the first thing God does? What's the first thing he does? It doesn't say that God shouted from the heavens, repent and believe, I'm the transcendent logos, you know, bow at my will. And it doesn't say that he's not, you know, he's pulling a sickie and he's not coming in today, just keep hoping for the future. It actually says that, verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Do you see that? See the first thing God does to outreach to humanity? He puts on flesh. It's the great act of empathy. It's the great act of relevance. It's the great act of condescension. It's like if you were younger and you found yourself crying, you, you're in pain and you're in darkness, and your parent, they get down on one knee, and they meet you at the level you're at, and they say, it's going to be okay. That's what God does in Jesus. He puts on flesh. One of the risks we have in the modern church, when we think about outreach to the communities that we're a part of, you know, because what John outlines in his gospel is not just something that he wanted to do then. This is God's mission in the world. He wants to redeem creation. He wants to redeem this world. Make it beautiful and good again with him at the center. Him as our king and all the benefits of the kingdom of God sort of swirling around. And this is the vision. And so you think, how do we get this out there? How do we get this message out there? How do we act in the worlds that we find ourselves in? And the risk in the modern church is that we think we need to do big, obvious, and loud things to do outreach. That we need to be missionaries overseas, as good as that is. Or we need to uh, put together this triumphant program of evangelizing our whole world, and unless we've got the program perfected, we won't actually act on it. We've got this risk of thinking that we need to, I don't know, come up with some strategy to take the city for Jesus. 
And these are really good things because they take seriously God's mission in the world. But here's the problem. What did God do? John 1, 14, translated by Eugene Peterson, paraphrased by him, I should say, he said it like this. It said, God put on flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. In other words, what's God's key ingredient in mission? Proximity. What's God's key ingredient in mission? It's proximity. It's relationship. It's empathy. It's you being the kind of person who could be interrupted by your work colleague. It's you becoming the kind of person who's of just such a kind of presence that people observe you and ask a question, well, hold on, maybe there's something more to the world. When the Word became flesh, God brought heaven into space-time in a person. And here's what he's doing now. He's doing that in and through us in the neighborhoods, the communities, the places of work that we find ourselves in. What did God model for us in mission? Moving into the neighborhood. And so here's the question I would ask us this afternoon. With whom are you being proximate in your life? With whom are you being proximate in your life? Now that might sound, here's the thing, that might not sound like a world changing question. But imagine if each one of us in the room asked it this afternoon and we said, God, who is it that you're calling me to be proximate with, to share life with, to be present with, to be still with, who's not a Christian, who doesn't know you, who doesn't love you, who's never heard of you. And if each of us did that over time, what kind of impact could we have? It's the kind of impact Jesus talked about when he took a mustard seed from the ground as he's walking along with the disciples. And he said, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. Small little seed grows up into this big flourishing tree. How could God use you in the locale you find yourself in to be proximate with people? Not at the expense of heaven's reign in and through you. You know, you don't allow yourself to be influenced by the people that you find yourself with, but you do get close and proximate and empathize and be relevant in a way that's not like the weird Christian guy with the Christianese language. And how could you be proximate? How could you empathize with the relationships that you find yourself in? Why? Because this is the outreach that God modeled in Jesus. He came in flesh. He spoke our language. People much smarter than me, they just call this incarnational presence. How can you be incarnationally present with the community that you find yourself in? This one and the world out there that needs the presence and the love of Jesus. Just as I finish up, I'd love to invite the band up. Um, it was actually someone who did this for me that is much of the reason I am a Christian today. Not a pastor, just a Christian. Um, I came to faith at a church called Pine Rivers Church of Christ, and the youth pastor at the time, he was this guy who for more than five years had just made himself well-established in the community. Um, he's the kind of guy who'd probably start a communal garden. He was in most of the high schools in the area, and he'd rock up at each one on a different day, and people just knew him. They knew him, even if they hadn't interacted with him. But it's just because he was present for a decent period of time in the same place with the same people, exhibiting and modeling and exemplifying the beauty of Jesus. 
And I remember thinking, I want to know that guy. And he's got something I don't. And that's the promise of this one of many models of mission that we get in the scriptures. That if you're present long enough and proximate close enough, over a decent amount of time, by the Holy Spirit, people will see something in you. And their response will be, man, there's got to be something more to this world. And that question I asked at the start, what comes to our mind when we think about God? They'll start filling it in with the person of Jesus because of you. And so I wonder if you could just stand this afternoon. I've said a lot. I've invited you to think about a bit. But let me ask this question just once more. Who do you say Jesus is? What comes to your mind when you think about God? And I'd love to just pray for us. When we kicked off this series last week, it's very explicit. We want to adore King Jesus. We don't have time to waste this afternoon. He's a king to adore. And if you've answered that question, who do you say God is? And the answer is Jesus Christ. And here's what you get to do this afternoon. Sing, adore. Maybe there's gifts that you got that God wants to outwork in this place and so there's someone you need to pray for. I just encourage you, get up out of your seat and go pray for someone. But what do you need to do this afternoon? The invitation is to adore. And if you don't know Jesus, and you've heard this hard word that if Jesus is God, then that's a claim exclusive to him at the expense of all other claims about the world and reality, then here's the invitation. Come and meet him. Come and know him. Jesus lived the life we should have lived. He died the death we deserve. That if we receive him, John's gospel says, he'll give us his life, which will overflow into eternity. Do you know Jesus this afternoon? If you want to pray with me and some of the team, we'll be down the front on my right. Drew will be there with me. And we'd love to just pray with you and sit with you in this, in this moment. So if that's you, please do come forward. But in the meantime, let me pray as we join together in song. Father, thank you so much that, Jesus, you came. And we're not in the dark anymore. The morning has come. And we see you as you are. I think of the writer to the Hebrews, God, that in the past God spoke through the prophets and the law, but today he's speaking through his son and you've given us yourself. You're the exact image, the imprint, the radiance of the full glory of God and you came and you showed us yourself and you didn't need to. And so God, we thank you for yourself. Lord, I want to pray for each of us in the room this afternoon. Would you just give us freedom to love on you? to pour out our ministry of song and worship and praise and spiritual songs and hymns on you this afternoon. And Lord, let us leave changed. Let us leave thinking not just of the greatness we can aim for, but the particular ways in which we want to serve the community that we find ourselves in. Let us leave changed in such a way that we're able to herald the gospel, not by staying distant, but by coming near and letting it cost us. Father, would you make us more like your son? We worship you this afternoon. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.